John chapter 1. Bibles and turn back over there. Let's talk about goodness for a moment. We are in the Advent season and there are many faces to goodness. There is good food. Been taking a survey out there, folks. We got hash brown casserole, fried turkey, ham, mac and cheese, good food. It's monkey bread. Who, who's down with monkey bread? Yes. Smoked ham, dinner rolls, cheesy potatoes. Listen, I grew up with cherry jello with cherry pie filling in it with pineapple in it. Oh, my word. So there is good food. There is good gifts, clothes, electronics, gift cards, handmade items, books. There are good family times. Kids come home from college. You play games, except Monopoly. No one should ever play that. Grandparents sitting in chairs while everyone waits on them. Yes, I look forward to that. There is also relatively good music. There's just a little too much of it. There are good holiday movies, right? Miracle on 34th Street, Scrooged, The Bishop's Wife, Santa Claus is Coming to Town, The Grinch Who Stole Christmas. I know even some of you like Elf. I don't know why. (laughs) There are good outdoor decorations, like Christmas Minions. Those are my favorite. <laughs> of course, the inside decorations with the trim tree and the manger scenes and the candles and the lights, even good neighborly interactions. There's a lot about Christmas that's good. In our culture, Christmas seems to settle some more good on top of us. All of these good things, as I even mentioned briefly in my prayer, they, they point to the goodness of God in Christ. It's not as common as it should be, right? People reflecting on the goodness of our God and creation, redemption. Consumerism can swallow up a part of the Christmas message, but it never totally obscures it. Beloved, I think the church needs Christmas. Ever thought of that? Of course, it's around this time of year when, you know, blog posts and Twitter posts and general bah humbugness about how Christmas celebrations include uh, pagan symbols with roots in the festival of Saturnalia. Fine. Whatever. Perhaps along the way the church stole from the pagans and rewrote their meaning. When I say the church needs Christmas, I I mean that the church needs Christmas in order to awaken our souls again to the goodness of God. The goodness of the Christian religion, the goodness of the indwelling spirit, the goodness of the hope of heaven, the goodness of the church. And Christmas is an obvious opportunity for us to do that. We know the goodness of God, right? We teach our children to pray, God is great, God is good, let us thank him for our food. Anybody not grow, who did not grow up with that? I grew up with that. We're right to teach our children this. God is great. God is good. But when it comes down to the practical living as if God is good, we struggle. This is a fallen world and we're part of it. Perhaps the sense of the goodness of God is what we lose first. There are many things in the world that secretly try to convince us that God isn't good. This was the devil's angle in the garden. You know these things all too well. There's COVID, and there's estranged family, and there's job loss, broken bodies, 
singleness, divorce, childlessness, loneliness, isolation from family. We could add a dozen other things. But despite the the ubiquity of the Christmas symbols, these hard things still seem to come to the forefront around Christmas time. How do we know that God really is good? That's the question of our text. How do we know that God really is good? The church in every age is in need of renewing our real sense of the goodness of God. We mistakenly assign God's goodness to the things of this world, especially the the blessed easy things. And likewise, the hard things, they seem to ice over our sense of God's goodness. We go up and down with it, up and down. But we can apprehend a lasting sense of God's goodness by dwelling on the Word, God incarnate, Jesus Christ. So how do we know that God really is good? The text gives us two ways to know this. Number one, in the nearness of God, in the nearness of God. And secondly, in the blessedness of God. How do we know that God really is good in the nearness of God, in the blessedness of God? Let's read the prologue, John 1, verses 1 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because He was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, I have a number of prayers about this word. and You know them. But I do pray that above all, we would be caught up into the goodness of God. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So, two points. In order to know that God really is good, we need to consider the nearness of God to His people. Let's look at verse 14, the first part. And the Word, the Word has put on flesh and has dwelt among us. I want to stop there for a second. The first thing to consider here is that John is picking up a point he was making in the first five verses of the letter. And we just read them. But in those first two verses, it was the Word and the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. We do not hear about the Word again until this text. Verses 6 through 13 
are parenthetical to John's point. They told us very important truths about the witness of the Baptist, the light that comes in the darkness, the the divisive nature of Jesus' preaching, and the divine nature of the children of God. John will return to all of these themes throughout his gospel, but in verse 14 he returns to say incredible things about the Word. The second thing to consider here at the very beginning is at this first part of Uh, of of this particular section, verse 14, there are two important things to see. Number one, the Word has put on flesh. Now, with those five words, John states the unimaginable. Can you imagine the eternal Word of God in free fellowship with the Father and the Spirit, complete, joyful, satisfied, glorified, putting on the likeness of you and me. The Scripture repeatedly affirms the Lord who is the Word, the self-disclosure and expression of God became a real man. This is a very basic, utterly critical part of the doctrine of Christ, that He took on real human flesh. Let's dwell on that just for a moment. Galatians 4.4, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Philippians 2, 6, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Hebrews 2.14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. John says in his letter, his first letter, chapter 4, verse 2, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. The consistent testimony of God's word is that God Himself mysteriously and yet sinlessly truly took on human flesh. The second thing we learn from this is that that flesh, that Word made flesh, dwelt among us. This word dwelt means to pitch a tent, set up a place to live. This language reminds us of the very real presence of the Lord in the Old Testament when He was in the midst of His people. Exodus 33, verse 7, describes the tabernacle where the Lord resided and would speak to Moses. Now, you remember, the tabernacle was outside the camp, but it was adjacent to the camp. Let me read Exodus 33, verse 7. It uses the same word, dwelt, as it does in our text. Now, Moses used to take the tent. That's another way to say that. Now, Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he'd gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak to Moses. And when all the people saw this pillar of cloud standing at the entrance to the tent, the people would rise up and worship each at the tent of his own. The people knew that Moses was meeting face to face with the Lord. 
And they couldn't sit, just stand there and do nothing because they recognized that the God of heaven and earth came to be in the midst of his people. And the people's response was the only fit response. It was worship. This temporary tabernacling was a foreshadowing of what God intended in the new covenant in Jesus Christ. This is what John is writing about. But back in Ezekiel 37, speaking about this covenant, listen to what it says. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. That forever dwelling is not talking about the temple in Jerusalem. He's looking forward to when Jesus Christ would send His Holy Spirit, and we together would be the temple, where the Lord says He would be in our midst forever. So the tabernacle in the, in the wilderness and the temple, these things signified and they represented something that was real for Israel, but prophetic for all of God's people. Just as he was with them in the tabernacle and temple, he'd taken on human flesh and dwelt among them. John says it differently this way. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The word took on human flesh. Look at the second part of verse 14. And we have seen His glory. Glory as the only one from the Father. Glory full of grace and truth. We have seen the Word became flesh and He was not veiled to the eyes of men. John says, we have seen. And this is more than like a sighting. Oh, look, hey, there's Jesus. Now, this word means intentional, careful, deliberate, repeated examinations. I mean, you remember how the apostles... They were like slow cookers when it came to coming to terms with who Jesus was. It it took them some time. But for years, they watched and they spoke and they listened and they evaluated and they considered what was before them. And then finally, by the power of the Spirit, eventually what they saw with their eyes and heard with their ears, they received in their souls. And that's the next part of this phrase. What have they seen? Look at it there. What did they see? Glory. It's the word doxa. In Greek, it's where we get the doxology. In Hebrew, the word kavod, it means heavy or weighty or full of splendor. Listen, the glory of something is its most basic, unchangeable aspect. What's the glory of the sun in the sky? To us, it isn't its heat or its size. We can tamp down the heat with air conditioning, and even when it's in the sky, it's bright but small. The glory of the sun is its light. It is the most basic thing about the sun, isn't it? Whether you're in the Sahara Desert or in the South Pole, the light of the sun is its glory because it is its most basic, unchangeable, unstoppable effect. John describes the word's glory in two ways. And in these two ways, we have the most fundamental aspect of the glory of Jesus Christ. Number one, His glory is as the only one from the Father. Now this should remind us of the discussion we've already had about the nature of the Word, remember? He is God's self-expression. 
He is God's self-disclosure, the speech of God. You remember, that's how John Calvin called him. He is the effigy of the Father. As we read earlier, he is the exact image and likeness of the Father, who is the Spirit. Only Jesus holds this place. He is the unique, meaning the only. He is the unique expression of the Father's wisdom, his character, his power, his splendor, and his majesty. While all of the children of God are loved with eternal love, only one is called the Beloved. Matthew 12, 18, Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. This is the one who took on human flesh. This is the one who dwelled among the people. The words glory is father glory in a way that John and the others had seen. No one, including Moses, had seen this. But in a conversation Moses had with the Lord, we get a a closer look at the Father's glory. Exodus 33, verse 18. Moses said, please show me your glory. What an interesting question or statement. Please show me your glory. The Lord said, I will, listen, listen. Moses asks to see God's glory. This is what God says. I will make all my goodness pass before you. And will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. What is God's response to Moses' request to see his glory? I will make all of my goodness pass before you. It is as if God himself defined his glory as goodness. Moses knew the glory of God. His goodness in word and cloud and fire. Can you imagine what John saw in Jesus' face and his voice and his hands? The second way that John describes the Lord's glory is full of grace and truth. These also, interesting descriptions of the glory of the Lord. Grace, the favor of the Lord bestowed upon those who deserve his disfavor. Truth. As the light shines on things, revealing them accurately, so the glory of the Word is to bring forth truth. And to say the Word is full, this is, listen, to say the Lord is full of all of these aspects means it is in His nature to be full of grace and truth. His grace is bottomless. His truth knows no limit. Listen again to Exodus 34, where both the glory and its fullness are unpacked. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Moses there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. In order to know that God really is good, we need to contemplate the nearness of God to His people. Here is where we have two problems. First, it's always been the demand of mankind for God to show Himself to prove that He is good, right? When I say show Himself, I mean show up, do something, act, make something happen. And usually... We're asking him to do what we want him to do so that he can prove to us that he's good. Sometimes this demand is righteous, like when Moses asked to see God's glory. Sometimes it's unrighteous, like when Philip demands that Jesus show him the Father. Sometimes it comes from rebellion, as when unbelievers demand that God meet their standard. Even even those of us in Christ, we struggle with this. 
We struggle with this in prayer, and we struggle with this in providence. We pray X, and it doesn't happen. We pray Y, and it doesn't happen. We pray Z, and it doesn't happen. Too often then, rather than reevaluating our prayers or our motivations, we say in our hearts some form of, well, God isn't listening. He clearly doesn't see the urgency here. How can he be good? This surely is an improper conclusion. I mean, what does Jesus say later in, his, in John's gospel? He says, whatever you ask in my name, what does he say? This I will do. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. In 1 John 5, verse 14, this John says this, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. The problem isn't on the Lord's end, it's on ours. Jesus is our advocate. He is literally praying for His people all the time. He pleads with the Father, as does the Spirit, based on His blood shed on our behalf, not because we're asking or even because we're earnest. He asks out of His goodness. We ask, however, too often out of some short-sightedness or even sinfulness. Beloved, unanswered prayer isn't an indicator that God is no longer good. In fact, it's proof that He is good. For Him to give us a portion of what we desire is Him exercising loving oversight on our lives. Which leads to the second way we struggle, providence. The Shorter Catechism defines God's providence this way. God's works of providence are His most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all His creatures and all their actions. There's nothing outside the scope of God's government. He controls and orders and moves all of creation precisely as He intends it, just as He's planned. He does this for His glory foremost, but also for our good. And this is where understanding His goodness is so critical. His hand moves it or it doesn't move. But His is a gentle, compassionate, merciful, grace-giving hand. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. Not only is our salvation an expression of God's goodness, but His governing over us also produces good for us. You know the verse, Romans 8.28. Shall we say it together? Or are you too cold? (laughs) My heater's on and I'm close. (laughs) And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. How could He who sent His only Son to die for the sins of His people then suddenly order His providence for our harm? Execute His plans for our hurt. Move the pieces on the cosmic chessboard so that we might despair. He hasn't, beloved, and He won't. In our prayers and in His providence, He shows Himself to be good if we have the eyes of faith to see it. Which brings us to a second big problem, is that we don't see Him. We can't touch Him. We don't hear Him. So He's here, but how? Full of grace and truth is a key phrase. John 14, verse 6 reads this, And I will ask the Father, and He will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of 
truth. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Three times in John's gospel, Jesus tells his disciples that he will send the spirit of truth to be with them and in them. In Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, where this pouring out of the church actually happens. In Romans 8, Paul speaks of the spirit of grace. He says this, you know these verses, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Here it is, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Yes, the disciples saw Jesus face to face, and one day so will we. But when the Lord ascended and He poured out His Spirit upon all who believe, we entered into a a covenant closeness and intimacy that exceeds even the physical closeness of those who touched His hand. You see, He was imminent with His disciples. He took on human flesh, but His imminence was simply proximity until they believed, until they were grafted into the vine, until they were made one with Him, united to Him in unbroken and eternal fellowship. Beloved, this is what you and I have when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. You recognize that. We have become grafted into the vine. We are in Him. Just as Jesus says, Philip, Have I not known you? Do you not know that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Beloved, in the same way, in a way that's fitting to who we are as created beings, we are in Him, one with Jesus Christ. There is no closeness that's closer than that. And that closeness is given to us by virtue of the Holy Spirit. Beloved, all may abandon us. None may come to help us. But this would only strip away from us all of the temporary supports, all the fair-weather friends, all the agents of our enemy, and what is left. Beloved, if it's all gone, what is left? Do you know the answer? Pat, what's the answer? Jesus. Jesus. It's all right. It's all right. I knew you knew the answer. I knew you knew it. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you and you healed me. And you've brought me up, my soul, from Sheol. You've restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Beloved, the nearness of the Lord means that we will always ever have the Lord. We might have more, but we'll never have less. God's nearness to us is proof of His goodness, but He does more than simply co-locate in our souls. (laughs) He brings blessing. Our next point is simply this. In order to know that God really is good, we need to consider the blessedness of God to His people. Once again, in in verse 15, John puts a, a parenthetical comment in there that will connect with what he said about John and what he's going to say about John in verse 19. But let's focus on verses 16 and 17. Look at verse 16. For from His fullness, we all received... Grace upon grace, from His fullness. This is how the Lord is regularly described. Do you think on the fullness of the Lord? We go from full to empty in strength, in hope, in resilience, in power. We, he goes from full to full. You ever thought of that? An inexhaustible, a well that's always overflowing. From his fullness, we all received. Remember what John already said in verse 12. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. To all who put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, 
who are not born of blood, nor of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God, what do we receive? John says, grace upon grace. Now, the NIV reads, one blessing after another, and that is surely true, isn't it? Or the ESV, grace upon grace. Another way of expressing the inexhaustible support of God's blessings. The problem with those translations isn't that they're untrue, they're surely true, it's that they don't fit the context. The word John uses that the ESV translates upon grace upon grace is actually grace instead of grace. For from his fullness we all received grace instead of grace. This is the normal sense in which this word is used in the New Testament and elsewhere. In order to understand why to think that with the coming of the word we have something instead of something else, let's look at verse 17. For the law through Moses was given, grace and truth through Jesus Christ has come. John's making a contrast and in doing so showing us why we're so much more richly blessed in Christ. In verse 16, John wrote, we have received grace instead of grace. One grace superseded another. One grace replaced another. You understand? It's another way of saying one blessing after another, except John's view is larger. The grace that was replaced, Paul writes about this in Romans 7. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Now, if I do not do what I want, I agree with the law that the law is good. The first grace that gets replaced is the law. Now, Galatians 3.23, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came. Here Paul explains that the law came from a good God. It came to express how to live with God. The, the people of God were not without an understanding, with, without a light or without a lamp. They were not without that at all. The Lord kept the people, prepared them for the gospel, and it has that function even still. The flashlight of the law shines on the sins of our hearts and leads us to repentance. The law is the law and not the gospel, but it is the gospel's partner in pointing us to grace. And in that way, it is grace. So what's the law superseded with? Grace and truth through Jesus Christ. This is why John says the former gracious function of the law is replaced. Now we have grace, greater grace, instead of what was before it. In just a few words, we see the word taking on human flesh. He came near, and he came near with an abundance of grace and truth. Beloved, he comes with favor. He comes with freeing truth. The character of of the covenantal relationship the Lord has with His people is grace-filled and truth-supported. This means two things. You ready? Is that how Paul Harvey does it? Or did it? First, when you received Christ, you received grace. It's pretty basic, isn't it? But what does it mean? Here's what it means. Number one, His expectations of us are grace-supported. We are truly weak in our souls. When He offers us the grace of salvation, He makes His offer to one who was dead. That's how the Apostle Paul described us, dead in our transgressions and sins. Not a Christmas movie, but a classic, Princess Bride. I'm going to hijack a scene here. You ready? 
Remember when the wizard, I forgot his name, when the wizard made the thing that he shoved in Wesley's mouth that brought him back to life? You remember that? What happened after that? Fezzik had to carry him. You remember? Fezzik had to carry him because he couldn't walk. It was only over time that his strength returned. Beloved, when the Lord Jesus brings who we were dead to eternal life, though we have access to all the power of the Holy Spirit, He still carries us. And He will carry us home. He doesn't do it begrudgingly. He does it lovingly. His countenance upon us is always one of grace-supported expectations. He wants us to grow in holiness and hope and joy and peace, yet He tempers His work with grace because He knows we're flesh and bone. Can you consider the Lord's expectations of you to be real, but those of grace? Can you stop inducing guilt in your souls because you aren't as holy as you should be, aren't as resilient as you should be, aren't as put together as you should be? Man, I'm the pot calling the kettle black here, folks. This isn't license to sin or to be lazy, but it's the call to rest and rejoice in the blessed goodness of God. His expectations are grace-supported. What else does it mean that you've received grace? His responses to you and me are grace-filled. How often do you consider the assurance of pardon that we include in worship each Sunday? Do you know why we include that assurance? Because in Christ, we have His grace-filled response, and we need to remember it, recite it, review it, rest in it. We don't put anything on the order of worship just for any old reason. That assurance of pardon is key, and it's key after that affirmation of faith because that affirmation of faith shines the light of the law on us, and it does what Tim always says. It reveals those things about us that are not yet sanctified, and if we're not careful, those things will beat on us. And so God steps forward with the assurance of pardon. He's the one that pronounces the assurance of pardon. We might ask for forgiveness, but his responses are always grace-filled. Is God an angry father? I used to think so. Have I told you that? I used to think that God was a grumpy, stingy sovereign. That he grudgingly gave me only just what I needed to survive because I was basically a screwed-up sinner who didn't deserve much more than that. That was my view of God. And I'm ashamed of it. It's horrid. Beloved, do you think of God in ways like this? Do you have your own version of that? That at any moment His anger is going to flash out at you and consume you where you stand? That it's only a matter of time before the real God of justice takes you down? No. It's only a matter of time before we realize His responses to us are full of grace. Grace, His favor that He's bestowed upon us because He's good. Not because we've earned it or asked for it or deserved it. We haven't deserved it. And if we did, there wouldn't be grace. And we haven't. That's why His goodness is so important to contemplate, beloved. We don't get what we've earned. We don't get what we deserve from God. We get His grace-filled responses to us because of Jesus Christ. Listen, if you've not put your faith in Christ, 
and haven't been a recipient of such unbelievable, wondrous grace, it is the time to put your faith in Jesus Christ. Fly to him as one who is fleeing the very fires of hell, and you will find a ready and sweet reception from God because he is grace-filled. What else does it mean that you've received grace? His plans for us are grace-based. His providence, as we've mentioned, is a good providence. But, and this is a big but, His providence will include things we don't understand and wouldn't include. Death, cancer, job loss, divorce, health issues, poverty, alienation, threats, closed doors, lost opportunities. Why? Why does the providence include these things? We cannot tell. We will probably never know, and we don't need to know. What we need to know is that His plans for us are grace-based because He is full of grace and truth, and we're in Him. We may not be able to understand why He would take us our children, our grandchildren, or our church down this path or that path, especially when it's a path through the valley of the shadow of death. But we can understand that He will be with us to the end of the age because His plans for us flow from His grace. You've received grace. You've also received access to truth. He is truth and He gives truth. Listen to the Apostle Paul's prayer in Colossians 1. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to its glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints of lights. Wow! What a prayer, what a calling that you and I have to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. How many times do you spiritually stub your toe or sink in a pothole or trip over that road hump? It happens all the time, but because we have Jesus Christ, He is full of truth that He gives us access to. You know what James says, He does not despise the one who seeks wisdom from His hand. All is not lost. He has known us and is giving us the knowledge of Him more and more each day as we live. Great great gifts of the Word and the Spirit in the church. We can know God and ourselves truly. Beloved, the Lord is near and He is good. Can I tell you something? I mean, what choice do you have, right? We have tangible proof of His nearness and goodness. Tangible proof of nearness and goodness. Where? Where? Let's eat.